I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I talk about a little life with Man Booker shortlisted novelist Hanya Yanagihara and then journalist Anthony Lowenstein on his book Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe. Hanya, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. This book, it's been described in many places as starting out as as one thing and Mm. then perhaps surprisingly developing into something else. So I'll ask you to describe to me how you describe the book. I describe it fundamentally as two things, a book about male friendship and also a book about a character who never gets better, about mm-hmm. the impossibility of, of getting better once you've cert- suffered certain trauma, and I think the sometimes oppressiveness of happiness and the oppressiveness of hope. But you're right, it begins with something quite different. It's kind of, there's a sort of slate of hand quality to the book. It begins with the reader thinking it is one of my favorite literary subgenres, you know, the post-collegiate book in which mm-hmm. it moves to New York and... and has sort of, you know, various hijinks there. And so the reader begins thinking it's that kind of story, and then the book gets darker kind of at the beginning of the first section and continues to slowly get darker um, as the book proceeds. And so let's talk about that sort of beginning of the book in terms of it being the the sort of post-college. Four friends finish college, they meet at college, they go to New York. Right. Let's talk about those four characters. Who are they? So the four characters are um, JB, who's an artist, and Willem, who's an aspiring actor, and Malcolm, who's an architect, and Jude, who's a lawyer. And, you know, it's there's a kind of tidiness to having a group of four. It's, you know, it's kind of something that we know about from books and also from pop culture. And I do think that there is a sort of built-in surprise and suspensefulness whenever you have a group of friends mm-hmm. and sort of watching what's going to happen to them over the course of their lives. And I would hope that for the reader, what happens to these characters is not completely what they might expect. So JB, I mean, he's an artist. Mm-hmm. He works for briefly for a magazine while he's waiting to break into the art world. You work for New York Magazine yourself, so let's talk yes. about perhaps how much of that how much of that sort of sketch of that New York life is, is taken from life? You know, it's it's funny. I mean, even with the cover of, of the UK edition, the publisher really decided to focus on the New York quality of the book. And to me, it's not... 
I understand why people think it's mm-hmm. a New York book, and it is a New York book, but it's not a New York book because of the institutions of New York or the events of New York. It's a book about New York because of the qualities of people who come to New York. And, you know, it's about, J.B. at one point talks about, or Willem at one point talks about, how everyone who comes to New York has a sense of ambition. Now, mm-hmm. that is completely true, and it perhaps unique among cities, I think, um, where people are actively going there because they are dreaming of remaking themselves um, into something else. And also, I think they're in search of families. They're in search of either creating their own literal family or they're in search of becoming part of a tribe, um, which is one of the, uh, you know, one of the things that really makes New York kind of hum with energy. So to me, it's, I brought to bear not so much literal experiences, although many of those sorts of minor characters who populate mm-hmm. this book are people who I've encountered. But I think the sort of what I brought to it more and what, what I think of when I think of New York is everyone's sense of shared bravado, yeah. their sense of re- self-reinvention, their sense of utter confidence and also, you know, deep embarrassment. The sense of you have people who are share a certain kind of entitlement, but not necessarily monetarily, but the sense that the world owes them something and they're going to go out and get it. And that, I think, is really... When people talk about New York's energy and they talk about New York's fizz Mm -hmm. and crackle, I think that's what they're talking about. The sense that you have a huge number of people in a relatively small amount of physical space and everyone is certain that they're going to be the ones, uh, the one who makes it. And what is it about male friendship then that you wanted to talk about? Well, you know, I think that male friendship and men in general are still quite limited in a lot of sense, mm-hmm. so- socially and societally, by what they're allowed to do and what they're allowed to express. You know, when you have a female friendship, you're allowed to sort of express anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you're allowed, there's no real strict boundaries in terms of physical affection. Female friendships are much more fluid in terms of how easily they can move into something else that's romantic, say. And they're, they're much more charged in a lot of sense. Whereas with male friendship, there is a sense of propriety that I think is still observed. There's a sense of boundaries. There's a sense that you can't discuss certain things, or you can't say certain things. And you know, as a novelist, it's a wonderful gift to have a group of people who really are hemmed in by cultural expectations of what they are and are not allowed to feel and say. And so, you know, when I was, I went to an all-women's college, mm-hmm. and so I sort of missed those years when boys were actually becoming men. And when I got out of college, I went into a very female-dominated industry, which was book publishing. Mm-hmm. And so it was always interesting to me to watch how men, even the most sort of sort of rebellious young men in a sense, became men who had to abide by certain rules. And that idea of men, you know, having certain ways in which they're not able to express themselves is going to come out more as we talk about where the the book goes later on. When we're first reading this book and it looks like it might be this story of, you know, four young men making their way in New York, there's almost a sense in which it's almost sort of parodying that type of book Mm. because what then will later on develop as the book turns into what it is, it's everything is exaggerated. Everything is, is, is sort of heightened a bit. All four of the boys are... I mean, almost absurdly successful. Right. They've all got like amazing careers, and 
and success. And then, as I said, when the book sort of developed into what it were, which we'll get to, the characters, like, you know, all the people that are around Jude are... Everybody's really nice. Like, right. everybody's really nice and helpful. Right. So let's talk about what, what that is. It's like a sort of deliberate... I've seen you describe it elsewhere as, like, a fairy tale quality, and that's where yes. it's going, isn't it? Yes, and it is very much... You know, I wanted to take two very different uh, literary genres, you know, the fairy tale and then the contemporary naturalistic <laughs> novel, and marry them, and they're... You know, they're sort of an uneven, it's sort of an uneven marriage, but mm-hmm. I hope from that uneven marriage comes some of the sparks of the book. But it does hew to many of the conventions of a fairy tale. You know, I mean, there's, there's very few parents in the book. Um, there's an orphan. There's a child who's had to endure extreme deprivations and, and, and tortures. There's no mothers in the book. There's no time named in the book. The resolution, the sense of happiness or closure that mm-hmm. the book has is somewhat, I think, tinny in a sense, you know. Uh, And so I wanted to take those sorts of tropes and wed it to, as I said, the way that people speak these days, the kinds of jobs they might have, the way they think politically and socially, Mm -hmm. um, the way that they demand things from life, and to see what would happen if you put those two together. But you're right. I mean, a lot of things in this book are, are very heightened and very extreme. It's not a subtle book by any by any means, and I don't think anyone's accused of being subtle. <laughs> um, but but yes, and everything is heightened in it. The horror is heightened. The love is heightened. Everything is turned up a little too high, and I wanted to really do that deliberately to make it a book that didn't really fit squarely within the contemporary. I think literary trends mm-hmm. you know it's not the word that I've been using recently is cool and I think a lot of, of fiction that's being written these days is cool it's, yeah. it's a little remote it's a little um, sort of self-aware of, of not being too involved mm-hmm. and this book is not that way it's um, it's a book that is unapologetic about demanding the reader's attention I think and, and, and emotional involvement and you just mentioned there that it's I mean the book takes place over over decades mm. But it's set in what is clearly obviously the modern age, you know, they have mobile phones, they send right. emails, right. but they're not affected by outside sort of historical right. effects. It's timeless and there's not really cultural references to pin it down to anything. All of, you know, Willem's in a, in a series of, you know, made up right. film names and right. things. Right. So why is that? It's obviously part of the same fairy tale context, but let's just talk about that in a bit more detail. Why did you decide to do that? I mean, I I wanted to write a book that had a lot of absences in Mm -hmm. it, and the sort of absences that I hope, you know, feel a little bit unsettling for the reader. But the main reason I took out the time was because I didn't want the reader to feel tethered by anything. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want the reader to say, well, they're feeling like this because it's right after 9-11, or they're, you know, or they're feeling like this because it's in the middle of the height of the AIDS crisis, Mm -hmm. you know. I wanted the reader to only be able to concentrate on the interior worlds of these four characters. And in that way, I, I hope it feels intimate, but it mm-hmm. should also feel oppressive, because there really is nowhere else to go yeah. but this particular world that they've made, this particular New York within a New York. And it's not even really a New York within a New York. It's a, it's a micro-society within New York. And so when you take away external markers, I think you do two things. A, you give the reader no escape, and B, you also don't ask the reader to fill in a lot of details for himself. I, you know, I hate it when I'm reading a book and, you know, they'll say something, you know, like the the cliffhanger of one chapter might be, you know, and then the towers fell. Yeah. And then you're supposed to fill in as a reader how the characters must be mm-hmm. feeling, what the city must be feeling like, 
I just think it's a cheat, and it's not something that I wanted to do for this book. It's, this book is, is about a very, very contained world, and for which there's no reprieve, and there's really, much like Jude's life, there's no way out of Jude's life. For the reader, there's no way out of his life either. Well, you talk about that, like that sort of New York microcosm, and they are, like, I mean, they're explicitly, um, well, I'll say post-racial, you know, mm. Jude, because, you know, described as, you know, the post-man, which we can talk about in a second. But, the, you know, the, the ideas of race, um, you know, gender and sexuality are, you know, explicitly stated, but because they sort of lack that sort of wider political context, not discussed in that way. And that seems to be, that's quite a brave move, I think, at the moment when those sort of political issues are are preoccupying a lot of people. Mm. Uh, You know, it's, I think that it's, this is not obviously a, an overtly political book. It's about the politics, I do think, of what we mean when we ask people to heal, what we mean when we ask people to live, what we mean when we ask people to to trust in this idea of repair. And in that way, I think it is a political book. But you're right, it's not out to make any larger statements mm-hmm. about race or gender or sexuality in that sense, sort of. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's none of these characters are meant to be stand-ins for anything larger than mm-hmm. who they are. I would argue, though, that if if it is meant to be political or, or sociopolitical in any greater sense, it's in its argument that we have such rigid ideas of what it means to be in a friendship versus a romantic relationship, mm-hmm. and it's you know it's it, it continues to be very very binary, especially for men, in the way it isn't for women who can go back and forth in terms of sexuality, and there's a there's a, a great deal more fluidity. Mm-hmm. But for men, I think I think that's still not as possible. And, you know, two of the characters, I don't know how spoilery you want to get here, but two of the characters... That's, that's entirely up to you. Yeah, I won't get that spoilery then. Um, but two of the characters begin a relationship that is sexual, mm-hmm. and I don't think either of them are gay, but I think that they do so because it's the only other model available to them. Mm-hmm. And it's quite constrictive when you have that that sensation that if you're in a male friendship, that once you start expressing yourself physically then it could become something else and I don't think that's true for everyone I almost feel now that my next question is is, is going to give more away then because I want yeah. us to take us to you know to where the book goes and we've started off with these four characters and then JB and Malcolm sort of recede into mm. the background and the book becomes more about Jude and, and Willem and, the, and you know their various relationships but specifically about Jude and Jude becomes the focus of the book and the focus of all of the other characters so let's talk about Jude who who was he um that's a great question i think he's to me he's someone who is never able to who spends his entire life trying to answer things that were done to him and is never able to. Mm-hmm. And one of the great joys of writing Jude, who's a very easy character to write because he doesn't change at all fundamentally. And he's someone who remains hopeful that he can change himself and is hopeful till the very end of the book and is simply unable to do it. But the frustrating part about him, I think, for the reader and for his friends is that um, he is never able to unlearn elemental lessons about himself that mm-hmm. he learned as a child. And I do think that there are certain things we are that we discover about ourselves or are told about ourselves up until maybe the age of eight or nine. And those are the lessons that are the hardest to undo and the ones that are the most resonant. And so in him, I wanted to create a character who's lovable and has the ability to be loved but for all of his other gifts and talents and, and advantages, 
is lacking the sorts of gifts and talents and advantages that he truly needs. You know, the gift of anger and the mm -hmm. gift of vengeance, in a sense, and the gift of um, not believing what he's been what he's been told. And that, to me, is what makes him a tragic character because he is somebody who is faithful in a lot of ways to to what he's been taught. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Hanya Yanagihara and we're talking about her book, A Little Life. And to carry on with Jude, Hanya, so without giving everything away, too much yes. away, let's talk about as much as you can about what has happened to him. So Jude's a character who is an orphan and was been taken in by a monastery. I didn't even know they had monasteries. Do they have monasteries? They do. The you know, this this was in fact, I mean, this this is the part where you know, it's always the parts that sound the most unreal that are the most real. Yeah. And they, in fact, still exist. And <clears throat> I had an acquaintance when I was growing up who was, in fact, left at, at a convent <clears throat> um, to be raised. And this was in the 80s, <clears throat> so it wasn't so long ago. But he um, becomes essentially the victim of, of one of these um, monks who, who begins to, to use him sexually and is abused throughout his life. And there are people, I think, who once abused, unfortunately, people smell it on them, you know, mm -hmm. and there are people who always are able to sense people who are vulnerable to violation and prey upon those people, and he is one of those people. And he's also someone who I wanted to make a very bifurcated character, you know, who's someone who's finds success and finds joy yeah. in work um, and, and real meaning, and in his personal life is someone who is struggling daily with... Um, his memories and mm -hmm. with his past and, and trying, you know, with increasing, um, I think, desperation um, to forget who he is and what he's become. And just to pick you up on that, he, he will talk about how he deals with his abuse, but he is successful. He's a wildly successful lawyer. He's a brilliant lawyer. He's, the, you know, the, the best student in his, in his law professor's class. Um, who he then becomes, you've got friends who he is eventually adopted by. He's beyond that. He, you know, he has a master's in pure mathematics, a mathematician. Um, he's a fantastic baker. He unexpectedly is brilliant at singing arias. He's like, he's a savant as well. Mm. I mean, again, there's, it, there's almost a sense that his brilliance, despite the fact that he's had this so terrible upbringing, is sort of an exaggeration, I guess. I mean, there is, again, I mean, he is an exaggerated character, <laughs> and I think that... But to me, what was more important was that, you know, I did give him a lot of gifts, and I gave him a lot of talents, and I think the best gift I gave him was that he was able to still love <laughs> and be loved. But all of those gifts mean absolutely nothing. You know, yeah. they really don't mean anything in the end to him. And I think... I won't deny that they give him pleasure, and I'm not going to say that success and money isn't important in his life because you know he has medical issues and they buy him good medical care mm -hmm. and so it is essential to to his adulthood but in the end those talents that he has those advantages he has don't really do anything for him in the end and we haven't mentioned yet his his full name so he's called Jude St Francis mm. which 
Um, I mean, he's been, he was a foundling and he's been uh, adopted by monks initially, but raised by monks, so that's, that's why. But at the same time, again, going back to that sort of idea of the, you know, of the fairy tale, there's almost yeah. a sort of religious parable element to this as well. And yet religion is a thing that's beyond the fact that he's, you know, institutionally abused by monks is almost entirely absent from this book and it, and again going back to their lives in New York it stated a few times that they you know their life is explicitly an atheist life right so let's talk about that why what's the role of religion in the book you know i think that everyone looks for and craves something to believe in <laughs> and i think that one of the reasons that jude is so in a sense committed to believing that he's wrong and he's deserved the things that happened to him is because if you don't believe that if you think that the world has is simply unfair or unjust in a sense that's a much much crueler thing mm-hmm. to have to accept so you know if your religion becomes instead thinking that you have done something wrong you have done something to deserve it that the world has visited upon you its horrors and terrors Although he's not religious as an adult, it is a form of religion. Sure. It is, in a sense, Christianity at its most punishing. This idea that you are being um, punished for a reason. And that is that is a very sort of uh, religious way of thinking, and the one that he carries through and has perhaps misapplied to his own life. But I think, again, the alternative would be to accept that the world is simply unfair. And that is, I think, some, for many people, a much, much harder thing to accept. Can we talk about what Jude does to to deal with the legacy of his abuse? Right? Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, obviously about the about the cutting. There are very right. sort of graphic sequences regularly throughout the book where he he cuts himself right. with a razor blade. So let's talk about that. Right? Well, you know, it's. I mean, first of all, from a purely kind of textural point of view, it's it's almost like a bit of music that repeats yeah. itself <clears> in a symphony. That sort of, you know, the sort of few bars that come up again and again and again. But for his life, it's, I think, like any addiction, is a way of reclaiming the body. And any addiction is a way of destroying the body. But it's also in those moments, whether you're doing drugs or you're anorexic or you're cutting or what have you, it's a way of asserting the self, of saying that your body is completely yours mm-hmm. and it's completely yours to do with whatever you want, even if it means something ruinous. And I think that is, you know, behavior that make complete sense for him you know it's something that one of the things that I find that Jude really lacks and is very sad is this sense of anger and when you do harm yourself like this it is anger that is you know directed towards yourself um, and it keeps you from exploding in rage and for him I think the way he has made himself go through life is by suppressing and keeping in check the incredible sense of anger and um, frustration that he feels for the world and rightly so you mentioned earlier both that jude is you know he's convinced that he can get better Mm. somehow but at the same time he he completely blames himself and believes that you know he was brother luke the um monk that abuses him and then takes him away from the monastery tells him you know you were born for this right um, and he believes that. That's firmly what he believes. And despite you saying that he, you know, he, he believes he can get better, also resolutely through the book he refuses to. Right. He, he turns away help. He doesn't help himself. This is fundamentally not a book about terrible abuse followed by a redemptive story of somebody... He, there's no closure. 
Yes, because I, I feel that for a lot of people there is no, uh, you know, I, I, I of course know people who have been abused and have um, found a way to answer it and, you know, live very good lives and have made an accommodation with it. And I know people who haven't, and and it um, does destroy them. And mm-hmm. I know that's not a popular thing to say, and of course it's not true for everyone. Mm-hmm. And there's no one thing that will ruin one people across the board. I think it's very different for different people. Uh-huh. Um, but for him, I didn't think that it made sense for this character to be able to to resolve a world in which this could happen to him. And um, and in which he could be um, find a measure of peace with it. You mentioned right at the beginning this idea of you know, men not being able to express themselves necessarily in the same way mm-hmm. as as women. And as we've now you know revealed, this is a book about relentless abuse mm-hmm. of a child. And this is again something that men are not really they're not really equipped to deal with to mm-hmm. talk about, are they? In the same way that women are, perhaps. Yes, I mean, I, you know, I've said this and I've gotten you know, in trouble for it, but you know, I do think that all girls have been taught that sexual violence will at some point be, if not visited upon them, but there will be a threat of it. I don't know that boys have that same conversation with their parents. You know? No, no and, not in the slightest. We, you know, we talk about a, you know, rape culture mm-hmm. as, a, as a thing that is there, that is omnipresent. Right. I don't think that's any way controversial to right. say that you know, women live... Right. with the, the everyday threat of sexual right. violence much more than men right. do. Right, right, right. But I, I suppose my bigger point was that, you know, it doesn't take away anything of your womanhood if, if you have been sexually mistreated, unfortunately. It's, it's expected. But hmm. I think for many men who have suffered abuse, it, is, it makes them question their very maleness, and that's um, something I think that's less explored. I'm Natalie Haynes, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. The fact that Jude has been, you know, horrifically abused in his childhood is not, you know, it's not just a, a thing that's used as a as a character trait to explain something in a plot. It is fundamental to his character, and therefore there are long sequences in this book where, you know, it gets worse and progressively worse as it goes on. Explicit scenes of, of abuse. Why, why did you want to do that, to go into so much detail? I mean, it's, it's, it's often extremely hard work. I, you know, I think it's my argument to my American editor who was concerned about the level <laughs> of violence in the book is that the reader is there as Jude's witness and <laughs> he's there as Jude's company. And I think that there is something that to be said about the respect for a character or the respect for anyone that you witness them in their darkest and most <laughs> horrific moments. And, you know, this is a character that I hope the reader becomes invested in and learns to care about and part of learning to care about someone versus whether it's a character or a real person is simply being present for the worst parts of their lives. Mm -hmm. To what extent did you, I mean, how did you research the sort of stuff that goes on with you? I didn't. I mean, it was something that came to me quite naturally. I Mm -hmm. I did a lot of research about his job, about technicalities, Mm -hmm. about um, the sorts of things like, which I find this is such a kind of ghoulish thing, but these adoption fairs that happen in the States. So I researched how, you know, could social services fail him so thoroughly? And the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I did a lot of technical work. But in terms of the life he actually leads, that was purely imagined. So what was it like then for you to, I guess, to live that life as well for the length of time that you were writing this book? Well, you know, you would be a monster if you didn't feel empathy for the character. Um, and they were very 
hard sections to write. Mm -hmm. They were great sections in a lot of ways because I did know exactly where it was going. And even if you were working through very dark material as a writer, that's often overridden by the pure joy of actually knowing where you're going and, and feeling it come so fluidly to you. So in that sense, it was a very pleasurable writing experience. But it's, it's very hard. You know, I, I didn't take any joy from it. It wasn't something that I felt was gratuitous, but I felt that I had to do it for this character because, and I felt a certain amount of respect for this character as well, <laughs> and like I needed to explain to to both myself and, and to potential readers what had actually happened to him. You know, there's an interesting, uh, in the States I got asked a lot about this thing called trigger warnings. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.